This should be played at high volume. Live and local. Let's go down to life out here. This is Acadiana's number one sports station. 1037 The Game. It's Saturday, and you know what that means. Finally time for the world-famous CD to step to the mic for two straight hours of no-holds-barred sports talk. It's better than Desperate Housewives. Are you ready? You better get ready. Because Under the Dome with CD starts right now on 103.7 The Game. And good morning, everybody. Welcome to Under the Dome with CD right here on Acadiana Sports Station, 103.7 The Game and 103.7thegame.com. And of course, we're coming to you live from the first South Farm Credit Studios. Baby, we're looking good. Oh, you're damn right. We're looking good, and we're with you for two straight hours of no-holds-barred sports talk. And we got a lot to cover. There's good news and bad news. The bad news is we're not going to get to it all right here, right now. But the good news is, is I got the time. And we definitely got the time. We got to make the most of it because of the fact that, you know, I'll be off next Saturday thanks to... LSU football taking on Mississippi State to open up conference play. They're starting at 11 a.m. You'll hear that right here on 103.7 The Game. But what you won't hear next week, and I think a lot of people are probably going to be very disappointed in this, is the fact that the world-famous CD won't be on these fine airwaves. You can hear us wherever you are, be it through the FM dial, a.k.a. that tower of power that is 103.7 The Game. The tower of power, too sweet to be sour, I'm funky like a monkey, sky's the limit and space is the place. Oh yeah, and also through the .com, the free mobile app, Amazon Alexa, Google Home. If your Google Home didn't trigger once you heard that intro, the line before the show started, you might want to get that checked because trust me, Mine went off, and it's every time it happens, it keeps going off, and I absolutely love it. Appreciate you listening in, no matter what. On this pretty darn good Saturday morning, obviously we had a lot of great high school football. We'll get to that in a little bit. But I want to get down to brass tacks here and start off the show with your Saturday sports sermon. The famous CD is on his soapbox to start your Saturday. It's time for your Saturday sports sermon. Scared money don't make money. You're damn right. In those five words, scared money don't make money. Scared money don't make money. Those five words could very well define year four for head coach Billy Napier a lot like Ed Ogeron when he said, We're coming. And we ain't backing down. The quote that defined his career for the most part at LSU. And to be honest, I loved it. And it taught me something that I've never quite realized. I've seen some, like, slight... I'm trying to think of the word right now. Nods to this in his play calling in the past. But I think this was a moment where it's like... He doesn't mind being a lot like Riverboat Ron during his time with the Carolina Panthers. His play-calling style is always on point, and I see it all the time. The shades of Riverboat Ron, they're there. He does go forward on fourth down, maybe when he doesn't need to. 
But this time, it looks like the gambles paid off because he realized he was doing it with short yardage situations and there was actually points on the line. I think probably most coaches would have just taken the points, headed into halftime with a with an easy field goal and go up 10-7. Billy Napier ain't most coaches. And as he said, headed into the second half, scared money don't make money. Scared money don't make money. The scared money made money, or the or the not scared money made a ton of money for Billy Napier because they were able to get it done fourth and goal at half. And it was it was tough. He showed massive huevos going for it. And they got it. They cashed in. And to a certain extent, what I saw after that game was reminiscent of what I saw when LSU threw that bomb on 3rd and 17 against Texas in 2019 when Joe Burrow delivered the knockout punch in an epic 12-round fight between the Tigers and the Longhorns. And also think Sean Payton, who considers himself probably the smartest guy in the room a lot of times, would have smiled seeing that gutsy call. After all, he did have one in the Super Bowl. Of course, we keep talking about the what-ifs, but this isn't a Disney Plus series that Marvel produces. This isn't Marvel's what-if. We're not talking about crocodile low-keys here. We're talking about realistic things that happened. And there's no what-ifs, ands, or buts about it. Billy Napier pulled it off, and that team took that momentum from the first half. They did the Kevin Foote special, make it, take it. They made it, and they took it to the house and got it done with a big win over an Ohio team. Like, that, they should have just mollywopped, and they did. Mind you, they allowed 14 points. It is what it is. One of those touchdowns, unacceptable. That second one was largely due to some penalties, but you still saw a lot of issues on the defensive side of the football. But what he did on Thursday was absolutely like needed. Because you go look at what they were seven days ago. They were 1-1 one one with a disappointing loss to Texas. I said they were going to lose. Thought it was going to be a lot closer. I mean a lot closer. The spread was like seven. I thought the Cajuns were going to cover that. Not the case. And then you lay an egg. Obviously, you won the game against Nickel State. But you only won by three points to an FCS opponent. And you allowed Lindsey Scott Jr., a LSU reject... Or, I'm sorry, that's, that's kind of mean. But a guy that transferred out of LSU after being a backup to the backup to the backup quarterback in that Joe Burrow era, he ran all over your ass. And for a little while, I was starting to think that this team, hell, I probably was going to say this to open up the show, that I think this team, it'll be time to push the panic button. And I was starting to think this team was believing too much of their own hype. Or as Nick Saban would say, they were taken and eaten a little bit too much of the rat poison. Thursday night was a step in the right direction for the Vermilion and White with a dominant win that was aided by Montrell Johnson. He was absolutely running the ball down the Bobcat's throat. Seriously, if he's not Sunbelt Conference Player of the Week, I'm disappointed. I know we got a full slate of Sunbelt Conference football coming up today. And I've got somebody on. We'll talk some Sunbelt Conference football around 10.30. But he was pretty damn good. Four touchdowns, I think it's more than enough to really secure that. Someone's going to have to be godlike to take that award away from the freshman. 
And now the Cajuns are 2-1. and one, But like I said, it's a vulnerable 2-1. and one. I said on the show last week that Billy Napier could be getting a call before too long to be the leader of a team across the basin. Scott Lower loves to look, work fast. This isn't a coaching search led by the New Orleans Pelicans front office. And I still think it's a distinct possibility. But his stock has fa- taken a little bit of a hit over the last couple weeks. It's fallen. Maybe it's time to buy at the dip. Who knows? But hopefully a convincing win over an inferior team like Ohio woke up this team. And maybe some ass-chewing over the last week helped matters. Because again, you only beat Nichols by a field goal. I guarantee you there was some asses being chewed from what I was able to kind of see. This was a game that they should have been able to win by country mile. They let they almost let Nichols off the hook to a certain extent. They are who we thought they were. And the Cajuns barely won that game. It was a disappointing home opener to say the least, but they got back in the good graces of everybody. I think that exactly was what the doctor ordered because it shows you, hey, you can get it done. Now it's time for this defense to really step up because conference play starts next weekend and you don't have an easy road, at least what we've seen in non-conference. You've got Georgia Southern, a team that gave you fits last year at Cajun Field. You barely won that game. And then you have a South Alabama team, which on paper, keyword on paper, 3-0. and The Dave Schultz Classic over in Mobile, Alabama, in the next two weeks, that's going to be a game that holds a ton, and not probably a metric ton of entry. Go back and watch the film from Nichols. They just couldn't wrap up to save their lives. I think tackling needs to be an emphasis over the next seven days or the nine days after a win over Ohio because this team just got torched by Lindsey Scott Jr. Don't be surprised if Georgia Southern, who's loved to run a triple option, doesn't try and do that. Same exact thing. The schedule doesn't get any easier. You've got App State down the road. You've got Arkansas State, and they look to be improved with the Tennessee Volunteers' former head coach in that number. And I think they, this team has finally kind of set, realized, hey, we have to prove ourselves to be worth that hype. The preseason hype they had, maybe they were eating a little bit too much of that. They're no longer in the top 25, but now the big goal for this program, it's the same as it ever was. It's not only to be bowl eligible, but it's a lot like major league. I think that's been the goal this all off season and now you're getting towards the beginning of that goal. Next Saturday, Georgia Southern on the road. It's to be like the Cleveland Indians in Major League win the whole bleeping thing. That's how I feel about the Louisiana Raging Cajuns. And if you want to call up, you can call us at 337-706-0111 and conveniently, just as I finish my diatribe, my pontification on the Louisiana Raging Cajuns, we got to get out to the 103.7 The Game Hotline. Hello, you're on Under the Dome. Yeah, hey, good morning. Uh, nice little um, Saturday morning on the way home, a nice uh, football evening uh, on Thursday night with the Cajuns, and then some good high school football last night. Uh, up early this morning, uh, having a little limit on uh, heel hunting. Got a bunch of ducks. Good morning. 
Good morning, man. To your show, listening to your show, and uh, you know I hear you pumping up the uh, the freshman um, um, Johnson boy who definitely uh, had an awesome game. But I, I want to um, make sure that it's it's said if I didn't hear you say it, all of those backs had a good had a good day, and you you got to credit that offensive line of the Cajuns, man. They they were just really dominant. You know, uh, four happened to uh, make a few extra plays there. But, um, you know, there were three, three, four, I think it was four guys that had over 50 or 60 yards and all had an opportunity. So um, Shane Vallow up there in the middle, in the front, the center, and the rest of those guys, shout out to those boys, man. They did a great job. Oh, no, it's, that's an absolute understatement. We bring up the offensive line all the time, and I think I've brought this up many a time. When you look at the Cajuns, especially under Mark Hutspeth, and I think we're starting to see that replay itself again in 2021, is the fact that continuity played a huge role in this team those early bowl season those runs when they made it to the New Orleans Bowl every year and were eight and four continuity was a huge part of that once you lost that you saw this team kind of go off the rails a little bit you've seen some guys right. be in and out but you are being able to keep the core nucleus around this was a testament to what I keep saying I think the most important part of an offensive line is keeping continuity and having experience over having guys that are like what we've seen with the Saints during those seven and nine years where you have guys that more do that quote-unquote cross-training stuff. We have guys, let's say, for instance, Cesar Ruiz. He was built as a center, and he wanted being able to be able to fill in really admirably against the Green Bay Packers last Sunday. But you saw him play more of a guard role in his rookie year. He just works at cross-training. I think it's better to have that continuity and have guys that more work on individualized roles especially on a group of five team like the Cajuns, I think that plays a big role. Yeah, man, that was just huge. Uh, I mean, that was a great game for the Cajuns. Hopefully they can uh, keep that role going, man. I you know, sure they, hope they so. They don't need that continuity for, the, um, you know, for like, like you said, those uh, App State guys and that Sun Belt. Man, the Sun Belt got a lot of – got a lot of uh, – got a good reputation now, and it's, um, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to take them keeping rolling. They, gonna, they can't back off, you know. But anyway – uh, have a good day, man. Thanks for your show. I appreciate the call, man. I, I, you know, again, I got, I, I'll say this: everybody ate this past Thursday night. I think obviously I'm bringing up Montreal Johnson because the guy put up four touchdowns. I agree with what he said. I'll give a shout out to all those guys. I think obviously Chris Smith did what he needed to do. He looked impressive. There are some things in the not too distant future I am absolutely looking forward to with this program. But Montreal Johnson, I think, proved something to me. I like Chris Smith proved something to me last year against Iowa State. In fact, I can remember about a year ago, whenever I was producing the afternoons, I said that Chris Smith was going to have a breakout game. I didn't expect him to have the breakout game he did in the way that he did, more on the special teams. But now you have somebody like Montrell Johnson. He is a freshman. There's a lot of other guys as well that are in that number, guys like Kendra Williams we haven't necessarily seen yet. If we can start seeing this running back group continue to just reload, I guarantee you this Cajuns team has a chance to do some great things, especially with a good quarterback like Levi Lewis. And eventually, next year, we'll see Chandler Fields probably take over that role. At least that's what I think. Who knows how it's going to go. But we're going to go ahead and take a quick timeout. When we come back, we'll get into the world of high school football, and then we'll jump back to the Sun Belt in a little bit we got a good friend of the program. He'll be joining the program not too long from now. Scott Watkins, part of the Sunbelt Pages newsletter, which is 
absolutely fantastic. I am a definite subscriber to it. So we'll take a quick time out, talk about that, and so much more right here on 1037 The Game and 1037thegame.com. to the pros and everywhere in between. I gave it a, uh, a 10. A 10. Let's get back under the dome with the world-famous CD on Acadiana's sports station. 103.7, the game. Oh, we undoubtedly get into the preps. We talk some college. We'll get back to the college ranks in just a few. But every Saturday, I try and do this. I make, I make sure it's a point to come across to get to it because the Acadian areas filled with so many great teams and high school football means a lot, especially to me because I've been in this area for a long time. I've seen some great teams, especially Karen Crow teams. Obviously, Karen Crow won a state title last year. STM, I've been like basically around for the last few years in this run they've had of state championships. LCA, Acadiana High, the list goes on and on to a certain extent. Turlings which, by the way, we'll talk about them in just a few minutes. It's been nothing short of impressive, the, the run that's been put together by Acadiana area teams over the last few years. So I make it a point every single Saturday to run through the scoreboard and make sure you know what happened with your favorite team. And we'll do that right now. And we start off with the matchup of the week. Lafayette Christian Academy taking on Acadiana High. The Wrecking Rams have had a tough non-district slate, and it became pretty evident that that's the case with this one. 14-13 win for the Knights. These This powerhouse in now Class 2A made big waves. 14-13 win. Turlings takes down Barb at 52-25. Notre Dame conquers Como 27-27. Westgate downs New Iberia 35-3. Lafayette High, those mighty lions stand up and roar. Double overtime win over the Carragher Golden Bears 31-28. Nothing short of impressive there. Hell of a ball game. Barn burner to say the least. Southside gets their first win of the season with a 28-6 victory. Iowa down Sulphur 48-29. Avoyles beats Eunice 34-7. Leesville manhandles LaGrange 50-14. Those Wampus Cats, my personal favorite. Now the Blue Gators are great. Maybe one day we do a tier list of mascot names amongst, amongst Louisiana teams, but I think Wampus Cats and Blue Gators are S tier, but Leesville 50-14 win over LaGrange. Speaking of those Blue Gators, with a 32-0 win over North Vermillion, dominant performance. Church Point, they shut out Rain, 25-0. Washington Marion beats down Peabody, 43-22. West St. Mary, they take down Northside, 48-35. STM back to normal, 63-0 win over Plaquemine. Barb, I mentioned earlier, Barb lost to Turlings, 52-25. Bo Shane remains unbeaten, 39-34. Definitely pretty cool to see that. Brobridge gets a COVID forfeit win over St. Martinville. Cecilia beats Denham Springs, 48-44. Port Allen beats Livonia, 31-0. Nothing. 
Then we get to some stuff in Class 3A. Iota beats Crowley 47-6. Jeez Louise. Bo Shane beats Mamu 39-34. Kaplan beats Northwest 31-28. Pine Prairie beats Buckeye 48-12. Northwood Lena shuts out Ville Platte 24-zip. Abbeville beats Vermilion Catholic 43-0. Then you have Erath. They beat St. Louis Catholic 29-21. And keep going on down the line. Lake Arthur beats Elton 12-6. Opelousas Catholic beats Port Berry 20-0. Wells takes down Hamilton Christian 28-14. St. Paul's beats Catholic High New Iberia 17-13. Delcom beats Gaydon 22-7. Franklin beats Berwick 20-7. Homer Christian, Ascension Christian. That was a canceled contest due to some of the aftermath of Hurricane Ida. That's still something that's playing large with a lot of different things across the state of Louisiana. Not just COVID-related, but that but that was interesting to see. Three weeks into the season, Homer Christian, Ascension Christian. That game did not happen. Generate Grand Lake, that's going down today at 2 o'clock. Lorville. They beat Kinder 41-8. Man, Lorville's been looking good over the last year or so. Catholic High Point could be beat St. Martin's 44-14. Willow Shreveport blanks North Central 48-0. Opelousas Catholic beats Port Berry 20-0. Sacred Heart of Ville Platte beats Basile 19-zip. St. Ed's shutouts Tara 43-0. Westminster Christian beats Hanson Memorial 16-13. Slaughter beats Centerville 24-20. Patterson beats Central Catholic 41-18. Morgan City beats Covenant Christian 34-22. Highland Baptist beats St. John 14-10. And that is your high school scoreboard for week number three. Definitely a wild night in the Acadiana area. But I'm going to go ahead and kind of hit on some of the big headlines that that kind of stood out to me now. I think the biggest one is obviously LCA beats Acadiana. The Knights have one of the best offenses. They've just been a prolific offense. But I think what we've noticed the last couple of weeks where they've been able to win these highly low-scoring games, mind you, Lafayette High is the only one they've been able to win by a large margin. Lafayette Christian Academy won 30-23 week one over Ascension Episcopal. Then they dominated Lafayette High. Beat them by 20. Trying to Falcon crew, again, they continue to not just reload, but revamp this team every single year. And I can't wait to see how it's all going to turn out for that program. And I think that's something, this is one of those games you hang your hat on. And I think now that that 5 Pete, the 5 for 5, that's not far off, at least from my POV. That's kind of where I just stand on this. I feel like it's going to be a fun season the rest of the way for the Knights. Acadiana High surprisingly 1-2 to start the season. But again, you had a tough road in this season. You're only three weeks in. You've got district play coming up before too long. You just look at it. Acadiana opens up the season against Caracurl, the defending state champs. They win 9-7. Then they get shut out by Catholic High at Baton Rouge, 20 to nothing, And then you lose in week three to Lafayette Christian Academy, 14-13. You haven't been able to put up more than two touchdowns in a game, or 
You haven't been able to put up double digits except for one game this year. It's not a great look for an Acadian High team, but I think once you get in district play, all bets are off, and this team could be going into the playoffs with a ton of momentum. At least it's just the way I see things. Meanwhile, I think obviously one of the other things that stood out to me, and it's not because I didn't think this was going to happen, but man, it was a wild situation with Karakuro taking on Lafayette High. First off, the game was in Bro Bridge. A home game for Karakuro in Bro Bridge. It's strange, but then again, we saw the Saints host the Green Bay Packers in Jacksonville. So nothing's unusual around these parts these days. But there's no doubt in my mind that this was at least somewhat of a surprise. Lafayette High beats Carriker in double overtime, 31-28. When I saw that final score pop up, first I thought it said Carriker won 31-28. And then I I find out it was a different score than what I had been religiously texted because we have... Obviously, you can hear Karenker football on Z1059, and I have group text with all the board ops here. Give me updates on the scores, on the reg. That way we can inform our hosts and make sure they are in the loop of what's going on. And also keep me in the loop. That way I can put it together for the postgame show and have an idea of what the devil I'm talking about. But Karenker lost a heartbreaker. This was a double overtime loss, and it's been a rough week for them, obviously. And I got to give credit. Mighty Lions got it done. I got one more observation, then we'll take a quick timeout. And it's the fact that Abbeville is out there partying like it's 2005. They're 3-0 for the first time since 2005, the beginning of George W. Bush's second term in office during that Katrina year. That's insane to kind of think about how long it's been since that team's been unbeaten. And the Wildcats have no signs of really slowing down as they approach District play in the next couple of weeks. This is going to be a lot of fun. And then again, that's just high school football in general. This was like a interesting week three. Hopefully things get a little more dicey as we get to week four. Because we got some teams with a lot of intrigue. We're getting closer to dis- district play. And that's when you get to really see who stands out amongst the best. Is Turlings legit? Are they going to be able to compete with a Karakuro? or a program like St. Thomas More that's had their number the last couple seasons. Can we see Turlings get back into contention for maybe one of those seeds that gets a bye in the playoffs? Well, I'll figure those storylines out over the next few weeks. Is Remember, it's only a 10-week season. It's not, it's not like that shortened season we got last year. It's a full 10-week slate, and we'll talk about that every Saturday morning right here on, under the Dome, except for next Saturday because I won't be on the air. Thanks a lot, LSU. We're going to talk about the Sunbelt Conference next with Scott Watkins. Going to get a little perspective on this program and this thing as a whole because there's a lot of stuff to break down involving the Sunbelt Conference. We'll talk about that next right here on 103.7 The Game at 103.7thegame.com. And you're listening to Under the Dome. Talk radio shows go up to 10 on the amp, but under the dome with CD goes one higher. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? 
These go to 11. Now back to the show that brings the heat on Acadiana Sports Station, 103.7 The Game. Welcome back to Under the Dome with CD right here on 103.7 The Game and 103.7thegame.com. Hopefully, you're having a tremendous Saturday morning. Maybe you're out there getting ready to do a little tailgating, obviously, LSU out at Death Valley tonight. I know a lot of people are concerned about the Central Michigan game. Maybe I'll get to that more a little bit later in the program. But right now, we got to go over to the 103.7 The Game hotline, talk with somebody who's, I think in my mind, at the forefront of the Fun Belt movement to get this team to be this conference to be acknowledged as a little bit more than just I'd say second tier. I think this conference has definitely made a statement to be towards the top tier amongst the group of five teams, and that is Scott Watkins. He puts together the Sun Belt Pages newsletter. Which, if you're a Sun Belt fan, I highly recommend you check this thing out. Scott, how you doing, man? Hey, man, thank you for uh, having me on. I appreciate the recognition. Hey, man, I appreciate you coming on the show. First off, we got to start with, about, with the Louisiana Raging Cages. Obviously, that's kind of where all of our allegiances lie when it comes down to it. Are you surprised with the Cajuns being 2-1, and one, the way it's gone? You obviously had a loss against Texas over up the season, which was kind of expected, but you didn't expect it to be that big of a butt-whipping. And then you barely win against Nichols. Now you got a really nice win over Ohio, it was dominant as expected. Are you surprised at this two and one start? So, like you kind of alluded to, two and one, not that surprising. But how they got here, a little bit. I thought they had a lot of issues um, up front on the offensive side of the ball the first two games, and they solved those issues against Ohio. I mean, they ran for what less than three yards per carry against Nichols. That's unacceptable, especially if you're a Billy Napier-led team. And then they go out against Ohio, a MAC team that has struggled this year, but still an FBS program, and you average over six yards a carry. They took a big step forward yet, uh, yeah, last night, and uh, it's now it's all about maintaining that. But, yes, the first two games, very surprising. Ohio game, not surprising. And when you think about the way this team has performed in a year four in Billy Napier, do you think that, that win against Nichols where you barely won – do you think that started like a fire inside of them to really prove that maybe, maybe things are need to be back to normal? Yeah, I think so, especially hearing Napier talk after the game. I don't think I've ever seen him um, almost not really call out a position group, but kind of talk about it a little bit more, saying, you know, admitting that they're not playing where they need to be playing, the level that they need to be playing at on the offensive line. And I think that did, even on a short week, I mean, you probably, you're probably you only practicing, what, two days if you're playing on Thursday and you're kind of walking through on, on Sunday and Wednesday. So for them to come out that much better, I mean, yeah, I, definitely. And obviously, looking around the rest of the Sunbelt Conference, one team that stood out to me when I was kind of doing some research was South Alabama heading into this week 3-0. and And it's a team that, like, over the last few years, I've labeled them as consistently inconsistent. They beat big teams like Troy, fresh off of Troy beating LSU, but then stumble against a Cajuns team that, honestly, that year, the Cajuns, for the most part, were struggling mightily to get wins. But now you have Kane, don't call me the big red machine, Womack, going 3-0. and What can you say about South Alabama? It feels like, to me, they've been a big surprise. Obviously, it's non-conference. We'll see how things go after next week. Well, they should be 3-0 and after today, but not very surprising to me. They've had the 
they have the easiest September by far in the Sun Belt, and Coastal has an easy September. So for South Alabama to have the easiest to me, I think that's saying something. Almost, I think, 7 out of 10 Sun Belt teams have played a Power 5 game up to this point. South Alabama has not. The other two teams that have not have had to play Memphis and Liberty. South has had to play Southern Miss and Bowling Green. Bowling Green is one of the worst teams in FES, and they needed a game-winning field goal to win that game. But, yeah, it gets even easier today. It gets all corner State, and then they're off next week. So going into October, the only two undefeated teams are probably going to be Coastal Carolina and South Alabama, just like we all expected. Just like we all expected. I think there's – and, you know, speaking of Coastal Carolina, I think obviously they have been the big dog in the conference over the last year or so. I mean, it definitely a big surprise. We see Jamie Chadwell take over that program, and now they're currently ranked 16th. And that's probably one of the highest rankings of all time a Sun Belt Conference team has gotten. Mind you, it helps matters when you beat a program like Kansas. That helps move you up. But you look at the rest of non-con, it's been laughable. Citadel, really? You're going to go ahead and book the team that Alabama plays once every two or three years to get an easy win? And Buffalo? It's like It makes you wonder, like, how is this going to help you down the road when you start playing programs that are getting better, like an Arkansas State and an App State? Because... Conference play starts, it gets tough after that UL Monroe game. Yeah, it's unfortunate that this is how the schedule has shaked up for them. I'm sure when they made this happen, they did not think that this is where the program would be. I think they thought that they'd be you know, winning some games in the Sun Belt by now, but being a top 25 team, I don't think that was really on their mind. You know, the Kansas series, that was something, I think that was a two-for-one series that they scheduled a while back. That was something that I think at the time probably made sense. I mean, if you put yourself in the shoes of an athletic director leading a team from FCS to FBS, what Power 5 team do you schedule a three-game series with that you feel like you may have a chance to scratch out a win in one of those three games? It's going to be Kansas. And then you go and get a who at the time, again, was a decent Buffalo team to add to the schedule, and you round it out with a, a local FCS in the Citadel and then I think UMass is just filler. But you fast forward a few years, and this schedule has just got really bad. I mean, you're way better than Kansas. Kansas is essentially Buffalo West. I mean, Kansas took their head coach, took some of their star players on offense, and there's there's not a lot left in Buffalo. So that's just how things have shook up here in the last year for Coastal Carolina that has allowed this schedule to be so easy. And it, it really is unfortunate. Talk right now with Scott Watkins, founder of the Sun Belt Pages newsletter. Recommend you go sign up for that after we're done talking here. And obviously, the Cajuns, they're going to be opening up conference play next week against Georgia Southern. And they'll be taking on the Razorbacks later today. But right now, they're one and one. And this is a team that Georgia Southern, they took the Cajuns to the absolute limit. And it took a massive field goal from Nate Snyder to secure that win last year. What do you say about this team? in terms of Georgia Southern in 2021 and what we can expect to see in seven days' time? It's a struggle. I think that things are heading in the wrong direction for Georgia Southern. I mean, I had predicted a one-in-one start before the year started, but it's still looked a little bit worse than I expected. The two strengths of this team, running back and the secondary, are really, really struggling. They're not getting the yards per carry that they need to have, and they have allowed over 300 yards passing in each of the first two games. And to add on top of that, they've lost two linebackers for the season, and they lost their star corner for the season. So they are very thin on defense. They get Justin Tomlin back on quarterback. He'll start against Arkansas. That's a 
very good Arkansas team, apparently. And we won't, I don't think we'll really know what a Justin Tomlin led Georgia Southern football team will look like until the, uh, the Eagles come and play Louisiana. So it, it's going to be interesting. I think last year's game, Louisiana, if you watch them play, they played down or up to whatever opponent they played. They played a lot of close games. And then you throw Georgia Southern, a triple option team into the mix, a team that wants to hold the football and run up that time of possession. I think a close game was bound to happen in that situation. And I think triple options kind of been the bugaboo for the Cajuns. You look at what they've done against programs like Coastal Carolina early on when they joined the conference. You saw more along the lines of a triple option. So I'm sure that's going to be something that's a little bit more dangerous for the Cajuns. But let's flip it over to a team that you're probably way more familiar with than I am, and that's the Troy Trojans, 1-1, and taking on the Southern Miss Eagles later today. What can you say about the Trojans, a program that a few years ago was coming off the high of winning over LSU? Their head coach moves on up. Chip Lindsey takes over the program. What can you say about this team, one and one? Like, nothing really to really kind of write home about, but I'm sure they'll wind up being two and one against the Southern Miss team. That's kind of turning in the wrong direction, at least from my POV. Yeah, this Troy team is not really where anybody expected them to be um, maybe two or three years ago. When Chip Lindsey came in, the thought was, you know, the Troy team is going to step up on offense and be a high-scoring, high-scoring, running up and down the football team. Uh, defensively, that first year that Chip Lindsey was was there, it was a struggle. I mean, they were they were giving up thirty-five to forty points a game, and that's kind of how we thought that this this would go. But it's kind of gone the opposite direction ever since Lindsey's first season. The offense has really struggled under an offensive-minded head coach. And the defense right now is number one in the conference in total defense after two games. And that's not really where we thought we'd be. So Southern Miss is going to be a good opportunity for the offense to get into a rhythm, especially with the game at UL Monroe coming up next, because that's going to be really big with South Carolina coming up. Even even with the Troy team that's been struggling a little bit, Troy fans expect to beat teams like South Carolina. And South Carolina is the team in the SEC to beat this year if you're a, a G5 team. But, yeah, this is an interesting Troy team. Jim Flincy has not he's not succeeded as well as many have hoped on the offensive side of the ball. This is an opportunity, though, Southern Miss. I'd have to agree with you there. And looking at the Sunbelt Conference as a whole, because I think without a doubt something that's been in the back of my mind dating back to after SEC media days, when you saw Texas and Oklahoma announce their intentions to join the SEC, the Big 12 poaching AAC teams, after we kind of see this thing wrap up in a nice little bow, once all, all this realignment and expansion and resetting everything kind of comes to an end, does the Sunbelt Conference now become the like best G5 conference by default, or is it still the AAC? Man, there's so many dominoes that are left to fall. It's it's so hard to predict because, you know, the teams that the American are going after, apparently the Big 12 are also going after them because the Big 12 is not done uh, expanding. So it, there's just so many things that can happen. If the American doesn't get what they want, they could turn their attention to other teams. And from what I've read recently, um, their top backup options are Conference USA teams. But there are a couple of Sunbelt teams that would look good if, you know, everything doesn't fall fall the right way for the American. But if everything does fall the right way for the American, they're going to end up with a top three of Memphis, Boise State, and UAB probably. And that's going to be a very good top three. The Sun Belt, in that case, would have an opportunity to get even better as well because they're not going to lose anybody to the American. 
so they can get stronger. For me, I know I've annoyed so many people by repeating this on Twitter. The best thing you can get in this whole this whole realignment process, go get James Madison. That is going to be the biggest budget in the Sun Belt. That's going to be a beautiful stadium. That's going to be an extremely competitive football team. You get James Madison, and the Sun Belt will be directly competing with the New Look American Conference. I'm interested to see if that's going to work. I mean, again, this one feels a lot like what we saw a few years ago, if this actually does happen, because obviously it just feels like James Madison, to a certain extent, is your Idaho-New Mexico state in the sense of, hey, look how far their reach is versus, oh, hey, it just doesn't – Like, I feel like geographically and budget-wise, it's a, it's a tough sell. But I wouldn't be surprised, and this is the last question I'll ask you, which happens first? Do you think we see – the AAC poach Cajuns, Coastal, and or App State, or does the Sun Belt increase their membership? Which happens first? Uh, the Sun Belt increasing their membership. I think that happens first. I think the AAC would have to go through several of its options to get to Louisiana, App State, or Coastal, or Georgia State. Uh, so if the Sun Belt is being proactive and not reactionary, they're going to go out and get somebody. They're going to poach, you know, either Conference USA or they're going to go again. I'm going to ride that James Madison thing until this is over. They go get JMU. But um, I think that is much more likely to happen than the American reaching into the Sun Belt. I'll say this. If James Madison goes into the Sun Belt Conference, I'll go down to Alabama, and you and I, we're going we're gonna to share a good time at a bar somewhere, all right? That's fine with me. That sounds good. All right, Scott. Take it easy, brother. Thank you. You too. All right, Scott Watkins. You can follow him on Twitter at ScottWatkinsTU. Make sure you go subscribe to the Sunbelt Pages newsletter. It is so – it's such a great resource of information if you love the SBC. Not the SEC, the SBC. We're going to go ahead and take a quick timeout. When we come back, we got a whole lot more to get to on the program. And we'll be back after this on 103.7 The Game at 1037thegame.com. You're listening to Under the Dome with CD. problems during the week it's finally the weekend yeah baby that's what i've been waiting for that's what it's all about that means you're getting more under the dome with cd right now on 1037 the game acadiana's sports station welcome back to under the dome with cd right here on 1037 the game 1037 the game.com hopefully you're having a great saturday morning and by the way it's that time of the week to kind of lock down some picks to click and my five my fave five games to bet on. Last week we turned it around somewhat. Wound up going two for five. Damn you, Pittsburgh. And now are two for ten on the season. We're gonna go, we're gonna turn this bad boy around. We're gonna we're gonna start rallying. Because that's what I'm gonna do here. And we'll be continuing the attempt to bounce back and make this a little bit more respectable. We're hovering right around that Mendoza line. So hopefully we can go a little bit more above that. First off, let's go to the Conference of Dixie. South Carolina covers against Georgia. They're currently 31-point underdogs. That's easy money for me. A little bit of a surprise, but I, I think 31 is a little bit too high for this contest. I think at one point Kirby Smart is going to call off the dogs and Will Muschamp is going to mess around and get this game under that 31. 
LSU, I know everybody's concerned. I'm going to put you at ease and tell you to put LSU covering 19.5 point favorites over Central Michigan. You can't place the bets yet at Tiger State. And they just announced they were, they had it, they brokered a deal with Caesars Sportsbook. Maybe we need to have Nick Diaz if LSU beats their conference opener against Mississippi State. He needs to show up in a purple and gold toga. I'll talk to him about that. But LSU covers 19.5 point favorites over Central Michigan in my mind. And then we get to Arizona State, BYU, hammered down the over. The 50.5 over under for that contest against Arizona State, BYU. It's not quite Pac-12 after dark, but it's pretty damn close. Houston, they cover Cleveland in the NFL. 13-point dogs against those dirty dogs. Against those Cleveland Browns. And Houston gets it done. They cover that 13-point spread. I I feel like that's too easy. Take the over on Chiefs-Ravens. 54.5 over-under. Anytime the Chiefs play the Ravens, two high-powered offenses, I'm gladly taking the over. The consensus is saying under, but I think over is the easy play here. And I'll throw a bonus out here. If you're in these survivor pools, I'm getting good at this. Not going to lie. I'm getting good at this. I didn't... I didn't screw up week one. Got a little nervous. But I think this one is a no-doubter. And I'd say you're going to be cashing this ticket. And that is, if you're in a Survivor League, lock this in. Tampa Bay over Atlanta. This is the one that's going to get you to week number three in your Survivor League. Once again, Tampa Bay, Atlanta. Hopefully we can turn it around and get to... Three of five or four for five. We improve each and every week. That's the goal with my Fay Five games to bet on. Back after this hour two on the way. This can be played at high volume. Live and local. Let's go down a life out here. This is Acadiana's number one sports station. 1037 the game. It's Saturday, and you know what that means. Finally time for the world-famous CD to step to the mic for two straight hours of no-holds-barred sports talk. It's better than Desperate Housewives. Are you ready? You better get ready. Yeah! Yeah! Because Under the Dome with CD starts right now on 103.7 The Game. Welcome back. Hour two of two is now underway. We got Ross Jackson coming on in the next half hour. But of course, we appreciate you listening in, however, you're doing so. And of course, we're coming to you live from the first South Farm Credit Studios. Hear this worldwide. And you can certainly hear this bad boy worldwide if you're listening through the free mobile app. Or the .com or Google Home, which my phone got triggered once again by the sound of that liner. We came back, and I appreciate y'all for coming back and listening in on that Tower of Power that is 103.7 The Game. He is the Tower of Power. He is too sweet to be sour. He is the rap master. There is no other. There is no equal to man. And you're looking at the man right now, or you're listening to him, I should say. Maybe one day we'll be on the simulcast. We've got one more hour, and then we have a little bit of a week off because of LSU-Mississippi State. going to have pregame at 9, 
and kick off at 11. You'll hear that right here on 103.7 The Game, just like you'll hear LSU take on Central Michigan. So if you want to tune in at 10 a.m., you'll be hearing you know Hunt Palmer and crew break it down like a fraction. And they do a tremendous job. Honestly, I can't wait to maybe get a little bit of extra sleep in on a Louisiana Saturday morning. Odds are probably not because my body is so used to waking up at 7.15 in the morning on Saturday getting ready for the show. But, you know, we'll, we'll figure that out. But I appreciate everybody for listening in. If you want to call in, 337-706-0111, I think it's a much about LSU because, honestly, there's not much takeaway from, from the McNeese State win. That was a beatdown with class. You didn't stomp a mud hole, walk a drive, like maybe you should have, and any other year you probably would have. But let's be honest, you didn't. Want, I, I think. Again, this is just my thoughts, no factualities about it. I think that Ed Oshron took a little bit easier on McNeese than probably most teams would, because any other team would have opened up a can of whoop ass on that program and would have won about fifty to nothing, thirty-four-seven. It was more about probably making sure you don't beat up his son a little bit too much and maybe you took it a little easier. And people are concerned. I've seen people all over Twitter saying Central Michigan, the Chippewas, they are scared of Central Michigan. I'm not. I think the Tigers win and they cover. I feel like that's the way it's going to go. Because, again, you know, don't get me wrong. They took Missouri to the limit, 34-24 in the season opener in the first game for Eli Drinkwitz in 21. But then their other only win they have is Robert Morris, 45 nothing. I think LSU handles business. And then we can be concerned about Mississippi State because, let's be honest, when they opened up the season last year against Mississippi State, Mississippi State was ready to go. And I'm almost certain we're going to see the same kind of thing. Maybe not some guy not named KJ Costello putting up like 15 million yards, but you're going to be out in Stark Vegas with all the fans in the stands. How's Max Johnson going to handle the clang and clang and clang and clang and clang? How's he going to handle that noise all afternoon on Saturday morning in Starkville? I know I probably wouldn't handle it very well just to be honest. But I think I'm more concerned about what's ahead. Today, I'm not. And I'm not here just going to pump sunshine and rainbows up your backside. That's not the way I'm operating. That's not the way I'm wired. I just feel like this LSU team is better than that team in Central Michigan. And they know it. They'll be 2-1. and one. After that, it's anybody's ball game. You don't know where the rest of this is going to go. That's the way I think about it. And then you got Auburn, who's currently ranked in the top 25. Bo Nix is really proven himself to be the freshman Bo Nix in his junior year, not the sophomore slump Bo Nix. And that's a great thing for that program, but bad news for the Tigers. Because remember, Les Miles lost his job in 2016 after losing Auburn. But I think his head was already on the chopping block. They just wanted an excuse to actually pull the guillotine and chop the head off. And that's where we got in that game. 
I don't think they cut Ed Ogeron's head off during the season. I think they wait until the end of the year and they cut his head off. Because, let's be honest, you've got a tough SEC slate. Yes, you've got a Kentucky team that you, in every year, is a should win. Is a should win. But it's not guaranteed. Mississippi State ain't guaranteed. Florida, I think Florida's going to whip your ass. Mississippi, Ole Miss, Lane Kiffin, the high-powered offense, the Lane train, if that high-powered offense is still rocking, rolling, strutting, and strolling, LSU could be getting mollywobbed there too, heading into the bye week against Alabama. Then you have Arkansas, markedly improved Arkansas. And then you have A&M, who maybe lives up to the hype. If their quarterback can stay healthy, I know he's out for the next few weeks, maybe they move down in the rankings. Maybe they start to kind of try and figure out what they look like. Jimbo Fisher's got the potential, and he's shown it. He's made this rivalry that many people say wasn't a rivalry, a rivalry. And then Ed Ogeron's out the door. That's where I'm at on this. I think Ed Ogeron's, his walking papers are being finalized. They're just waiting until the end of the season to give it to him. And I understand the people that are saying, oh, you're not going gonna to be spending all this money to get rid of him. And what else is new at LSU? They're getting so much money from everybody else, it's not even funny. They just brokered a deal with Caesars Sportsbook, and you say, oh, we don't have, they don't have the money. Bull. That's where I'm at on that. BS. They have the money for it. It's a load, it's a load of you-know-what people saying that they don't have the money. The fire at Ogeron. And I think they will at the end of the year. That's just my hot take. But I, do, I still think LSU does win. If anybody thinks that LSU isn't going to win against Central Michigan, I want you to call me and tell me why. 337-706-0111. 337-706-0111. In the meantime, though, I saw this question brought up on Twitter the other day. And I wanted to bring it here and get your thoughts. And they gave four options. And it was, which was the most impressive win of Sean Payton's career as the head coach in the New Orleans Saints. And the four options were the rebirth game, the Cowboys game in 06, which I don't remember I don't remember much of that game, to be honest with you. The Patriots in 2009, at the Seattle Seahawks in 2019, or the Packers this past Sunday. And I'll go controversial here. I think the rebirth game immediately needs to be taken out. It was great to see. But I don't think it's impressive. It stands on its own as one of the greatest games in Saints history for a lot of different reasons, not because of how impressive the victory was, how impressive the margin of victory was against a Falcons team that was 8-8 the year before and went 7-9 in 2006. I don't count that as impressive. The Cowboys win in 06. I wound up looking back at the box score. I'd have to watch the game again to understand the importance in the historical context, but I'm taking that out as well. And I'm not going to be a victim of recency bias and go with the Packers, so I'm left with Seahawks in 2019 or the Patriots in 2009. And I'm always going to go with the Patriots game 
for a lot of reasons. And this is something that I've, I've taken away, and I thought about this. Like, when I saw those four games come up, which one pops to mind most as a, a amazing victory? You won 38-17 to against the 2009 Patriots, a Patriots team that was still considered like one of those like superpowers in the league. 2000, like a couple years ago, they were on the verge of being undefeated. And then you have everybody's favorite guy in Eli Manning get it done, and he scores a big win and a Super Bowl and spoils the undefeated season and the Miami Dolphins could pop a little bit of the bubbly. 2009, New England Patriots were still a power. They got to the playoffs, got eliminated early, but, you know, that's just how it goes sometimes. When you're in the wild card round taking on a Baltimore Ravens team that still has Ray Lewis and Terrell Suggs and is prime. The 2009 season wasn't necessarily the greatest for them, but you knew that this Patriots team, just in terms of your odds and where things were going to go for this franchise, I think it's without a doubt one of the most impressive wins of Sean Payton's career by a country mile. And the Saints were on a roll, undefeated. The Saints a few years ago were undefeated, and they played the New England Patriots, and they lost Thanks to some very questionable calls. I think this was back in 2013. The As Kevin Foote likes to call the forgotten year. 2013 was a damn good year. And if not for that Patriots game, I think it would have been even more amazing. But you made a statement when you won against the NFL's golden child. And I can remember, because I used to work in retail, and I remember talking to people all the time about this team. During that 2009 season, everybody was excited to see what this team could do because there was a lot of them that were fans of the franchise from the second they were born or from like the second they were conceived in 1967. The second the season, first season began, they were fans of them. Original diehard hoodats that saw a lot of crap. And then they were able to see this moment. It's not like how you hear in Shawshank Redemption when Andy Dufresne walked through the mile of you-know-what. He wound up getting to the promised land, and he was able to come out clean the other side. That's what the Saints did. And this was a game that I can remember people saying the next day, the next week, that this was a statement victory. And after that game, you thought about it, probably after you went 10-0. and Because... Heading into the game, you were 10-0. You came away with a really nice, dominant win over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, as you should have in 2009, if we're going to be quite honest with each other. And you were 10-0. Then you beat the New England Patriots to improve to 11-0 in Week 12. Now the Redskins gave you a heart attack and a half the next Sunday. But that was a game where you sat there like, no matter what happens, it's all kind of lanyap or lanyap, depending on where you're from. Let's go ahead, and I think this team has every opportunity to win the whole damn thing. That's what they did. This was that moment. I don't think 2021, week one, you're going to sit there and say the Saints are winning the Super Bowl just because of that game. Unless you're a diehard fan and you just have that like eternal optimism, you aren't buying a week one win as saying, hey, this is that moment. 
we're going to win the whole darn thing. Because look what we did without all these guys. I can't take that to the bank. I can take a Week 12 win and proving you to 11-0 because you've proven that you can beat 11 of 32 teams relatively easily. Now, Jameis Winston looked damn good, but I feel like the fact that the game plan worked to perfection. The first half, you just absolutely, like, ate up clock like you were Takara Kobayashi in the hot dog eating contest before he was banned. You were dominant with the run game and running methodical long drives. That is vintage Sean Payton. We talked about the 2019 Seahawks game. That was basically a carbon copy in terms of how the game plan was executed. That was 100% a game plan that I can remember seeing just a few years ago. And the Saints started to use that when they play these bigger-name opponents. Then they kind of changed things up a little bit. Seriously, go back to 2019, look at the time of possession in that 33-27 game at Seattle with Teddy Bridgewater. Don't forget about that. Teddy Bridgewater was on that team. That's why I'm not necessarily sure we can go ahead and endorse that game as well. Because it was much more about controlling. I mean, that was how it was the last few times they've played the Seahawks. It's been about holding them down. And getting time of possession. I'm actually pulling up the stats right now just to kind of look at this side by side. At the time of possession, the Saints... We're a couple minutes behind, but I think for much of the first half, they controlled it. So the person who came up with that, I think they're out of the mind for saying the 2019 game. In 2021, it's too early to say. It was impressive, but it's not the most impressive. I think it's still going to be the Pats because of the context of it all. This was the game when you knew what the future held for the Saints. When you knew in the back of your mind. Because I'm always more of a guy that's one to think about what this means for the future. I think the Green Bay Packers game improves your stock and you have a better chance of winning games. But I'm not necessarily sure it's going to lead you to total victory and winning the Super Bowl. That's just the way I think about it. All right, it's Under the Dome with CD. We're going to take a quick timeout. When we come back, we'll get into more of the NFL side of things. Ross Jackson joining the program at 1130. You're listening to Under the Dome right here on 103.7 The Game at 103.7thegame.com. famous CD may be in his 30s, but he's still a kid at heart. <laughs> now, let's get back to a guy that has an unhealthy obsession with a number that offensive linemen wear with Under the Dome with the world famous CD on 1037 The Game, Acadiana Sports Station. And we bring up that number. I gotta, I gotta give a shout out. I keep forgetting about this until like the NFL season starts and I get to see my first Steelers game. And I was able to watch some of it, thanks to the fact that the Saints played the 3 o'clock game. But Kevin Dotson, former Louisiana Raging Cajun, rocking the number that I love, and that is 
number 69 on the offensive line. Dude, I don't know if he did that on purpose or not, but if he did, i got to give him mad props on that front. Meanwhile, some of the college slate has started up. Oklahoma taking on Nebraska. I have that behind me right now, and it's 7-0 already. But, man, I'm blown away. West Virginia putting the boots to Virginia Tech 13-0. And, by the way, Virginia Tech's ranked 15th, and West Virginia's up 13-0. Maybe that, that new home field apparel stuff, that wound up giving them a little bit of the rub. Coastal Carolina's up on Buffalo 7-0. Miami, Michigan State are tied up nil-nil. Michigan up 7-3. And Texas A&M, of course, they're up on New Mexico 14-0. But New Mexico, give them credit, they're driving right now in this contest late in the first quarter. But I want to get to some NFL takeaways real quick from the overreaction, overreaction stuff about week one. And there's a few things that I'm thinking about. The first one, California dreaming. Is that what Urban Meyer is already thinking about after week one as the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars? You have a once-in-a-lifetime prospect in Trevor Lawrence. You have a once-in-a-lifetime running back in Travis Etienne, who's now out for the year after he got hurt in the Saints game, which further proves why you should sit star running backs in the preseason. Case in point, look at Alvin Kamara. But you have Urban Meyer. He has his first ever NFL job, and already, you know, a guy that's never really lost all that much. He had one of the worst games of his career, not just high school, college, but his career. Period. I think that already, Trevor Lawrence is already kind of. I think people have just been waiting, like a. Uh, Angry mob waits outside of a building just waiting for him to fail. I don't know why. Trevor Lawrence seems like a great guy. People want to see him fail for some reason. But I don't think it's as much him failing. It's more the head coach failing him. Urban Meyer, I think now that the USC job is wide open, I would not be surprised if he's at least going to take up the conversation after one season as the head coach of Jaguars. He won't leave after week two. That's stupid. But I think 2022, he's thinking about it heavily because that's the job. That's the only other job that he would take. He says no chance. No chance he's going to take that job. He is. I think he is. Russell Wilson continues to be like a phenomenal player that doesn't get nearly as much love. We talk about Brett Favre, excuse me, Aaron Rodgers being the MVP last season. I think you could say Russell Wilson deserved way more credit for what he did last season. And he like absolutely proved himself in a big way. Against the Indianapolis Colts, 254 yards, four touchdowns. Russ can cook no matter what. And I'm looking forward to seeing what this team can do because he's going to be in the toughest division where his A game has to be A-plus game the entire season to contend for a wild-card spot. It's not like any other year. This is going to be the toughest division in football. It's going to cannibalize itself, but it's all about surviving that cannibalization. By the way, 
I was right. I was right. The NFC West may be the NFC best. And another reason why I say that, the Rams are for real. Yes, you played a Chicago Bears team that's largely can't get their head out of their ass. They still wanted to trot out the Ginger Ninja week one instead of Justin Fields would have been the better move. And you get beat 34-14 by the Rams. By the way, I'm so mad at the fact that the guy I was playing in fantasy this week had the Rams kicker left and they kicked like 15 extra points. I'm like, do we really have to have this happen? Like, I was literally so excited because I had a really good game from Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase. That pairing absolutely popped off for me. Had Jameis Winston sitting on the bench with 50 points. And Williams, I believe, he another guy just absolutely popped off, left him on the bench. Story of my bleeping life. That said, Rams 34-14 win over a Bears team that's been always kind of been able to just slide in to the postseason the last couple of years. I think the Rams have every opportunity to, to turn around and do something really good. So I'm thinking the Rams are for real, and it makes the NFC West so much more entertaining. I saw a lot of people heading into the year say the Super Bowl pick was the Los Angeles Rams. I didn't understand it. Mind you, yes, you got Matt Stafford, but Matt Stafford has not proved himself to be a playoff QB. He's had moments where he shines. And then you have also the running back troubles that the Rams have had the last few years. You had Todd Gurley, an amazing prospect, and he fell apart quicker than, you know, an old $20 bill. He folded pretty quick. Now you've got, you're wondering what's going on with the team. And I was talking about the Colts earlier. I'll put the Colts and the Washington football team in the same lot. They're cursed. Now, Thursday night football came around. They gave Riverboat Ron Rivera and the WFT a pity win in my mind over New York Giants because the Giants pretty much handed the win on a silver damn platter the way that finish was you had everything going the way of the New York Giants and then a game winning field goal on the line and you have a defensive guy step off sides on a field goal that guy is probably on the tarmac still he ain't getting another job anytime soon but we're going to go ahead and talk some more New Orleans Saints because I need to get into it with my guy Ross Jackson after a big W this past weekend. We'll continue that conversation next right here on 1037 The Game and 1037thegame.com. We're locked on. The Saints next. famous CD is a pretty easygoing guy for the most part. Some might consider him to be the dude of Acadiana's sports station. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. There are some occasions when he does get unreasonably upset. I still don't understand why they drafted Ian Book in the fourth round. You didn't need another quarterback. You had two already. You could have wound up getting something that's going to help you out down the road offensively rather than somebody that's probably going to be more on the lines of a Garrett Grayson in the history of the Saints franchise. 
Let's all hope he's in a good mood this morning. Back to more Under the Dome on 103.7 The Game, Acadiana's sports station. I am in a good mood because of the fact that, one, the Saints won. Cajuns won Thursday night, and the Saints are getting ready for week two against the Carolina Panthers. And then I get to talk to my good friend, Ross Jackson, host of the Locked on Saints podcast and Canal Street Chronicles. That's what's really got me in a good mood. Ross, how's it going, brother? What's up, brother? How are you, man? Glad to be here with you for another weekend of Saints football. Glad to be able to uh, finally be able to do this. You know what I'm saying? Oh, exactly. It's so damn, it's so damn good because you had the win on Sunday. And I brought it up to start the hour is the fact that somebody brought this up on Twitter asking what the most impressive win of Sean Payton's career was. And I had the rebirth uh-huh. game, Cowboys in 06, pa- pa- Patriots in 09, Seahawks in 2019, or the Packers this past Sunday. In my mind, I think it's the 2009. I think it's the 2009 game. Which do you think was the most impressive win of Sean Payton's career? Yeah, I think out of those, I would agree with you that 2009 game. I mean, just impossible circumstances uh, in that situation, and certainly like the circumstances of this past weekend were not great or preferable <laughs> in any way, you know, but that 2009 game for sure being one, uh, particularly going up against like a division rival. It's not the first game, but it wasn't the first game of the season for them either in that situation. And so it was just very, very different. I will say that, uh, you know, uh, Deuce Windham and I had a co- had this conversation as well over on uh, our uh, confessional podcast. And we talked about these games that are considered some of Sean Payton's best wins. And one that, we feel like should be talked about more. You remember the Buffalo game in Buffalo 2017, where they ran the ball like 24 straight times and scored six rushing touchdowns away from home. I kind of remember that game. It's a little vague, but I I do remember that game. But yeah, I mean, that was kind of a, that 2017 season was just a complete turnaround. When you think about everything that happened in those years prior, you started to make strides and, and especially in that game, especially in that game. Hey Ross, you there? Yeah, that yeah. was yeah season season. All right, let's look at some technical difficulties right now. We're gonna try and get Ross back on the air. Look like we had some tech issues. Looks like you know these phones—they're always a little bit stranger to kind of figure that out, but. Luckily, we're going to go ahead and I just text him, call me back, because it was just like all over the place to kind of start that segment. But, you know, he brings up the Buffalo Bills game against the New Orleans Saints in 2017. That's a game I feel like not a whole lot of people do talk about. It's, you know, I'm just trying to remember how that all went. But I think that, that just based off of memory, I think that was pretty impressive. But we're going to go ahead and try again to get him on the 103.7 The Game hotline. Ross, you there? Hey, there you are. Sorry about that. It's all right. It was it was weird because I was hearing myself, and then you faded out, and you sounded like you were a million miles away. I'm like, okay, we're gonna try and figure this out. <laughs> that was a very strange moment. Um, but yeah, we were talking about some of those games that that live up at the top of the list for uh, for Sean Payton and that that Buffalo game. But I hear you. It's one that doesn't live in the same kind of. Um, uh, it's not revered as much as you know some of these other like contextualized wins that have to do with combating adversity and everything like that. It was more so just a game in which the New Orleans Saints showed up and imposed their will on an opponent in a way that you'd never expect them to do so. 
And I think that was kind of the moment when you look at the Saints on Sunday afternoon when they played the Green Bay Packers, they mm-hmm. dominated in terms of one of the most important statistics that kind of gets overlooked to a certain extent, and that was time of possession. And the 2017 yeah. game was like the definition of that. You had them outscored in terms of TOP, 41 minutes compared to a paltry 18 minutes. You look, especially in the first half, Green Bay was absolutely outclassed in that perspective. I think that was just Sean Payton's game plan working to a T. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, by the time that you got to the uh, two-minute warning of the first half, the Saints had held the ball 20 minutes and 58 seconds to Green Bay, seven minutes and two seconds. Um, and then over the course of that first half, the Saints opened up that that game with a nine-play uh, nine, uh, drive and then followed up with two straight 15 play drives. They ran over 30 plays in the first half on offense when Green Bay ran maybe a total of 47 for the game. So this was absolute domination of the game plan dictating the the, the rhythm of the game, the pace of the game. They created the game that they wanted to play in Jacksonville against the Green Bay Packers, and that was a big, big reason why they were able to control the game as much as they could because they dictated the way that game was going to go from the very beginning. Talking right now, Ross Jackson locked on Saints podcast and Canal Street Chronicles. And now we kind of look ahead to this game with the Carolina Panthers and the Saints. And again, adversity is on the side of the Saints right now when you see the fact you have like eight coaches test positive for COVID-19 despite the fact that all these guys were vaccinated, which is a good thing they were vaccinated because obviously they could it could be a lot worse of a scenario and Michael Thomas being the one player which was a little bit weird because I'm like like was he around the team because it's like he he's on the IR right now is he still in the facility somewhere yeah yeah because he's still rehabbing through and getting back from his injury okay. so he's been with the team he's just not able to practice but you know he's in the weight rooms or the you know the rehab part of the facility and things like that. And it's amazing to think about the fact that he was there and, you know, nobody else amongst the team has caught it. I was like, when I saw that, it's like, oh, no. Like, because you know the NFL, they love to mess with the Saints in one way or another. <laughs> and you thought this was going to be something that could have, like, very well have hurt this team. Looks like the game's still on. Everybody tested negative. Everybody tested out negative. So that's a huge step in the right direction. Yeah, big time. And, you know, it, it seems that the, the coaches that, that did tests um, aren't going to be able to make the trip the last that I heard, although there were kind of conflicting reports that, you know, if they ended up testing negative this morning that they could still make the flight. But then I've also seen some reports suggesting that they won't be traveling. But in either case, the sideline is one part. The preparation portion of, of, of this conversation to me is the really, really important piece of the puzzle. Because usually, if you're when you're practicing and you're getting ready for a game, you have all of your position players that are kind of grouping together, and they're watching, and they're, you know, they're doing their film study, they're work, working with one another, they're working directly with their position coaches, as opposed to what I think many people might assume is that the offense is just all in, you know, the entire offense is all in one big old room together. And they're learning everything together, which isn't isn't often the case at all. Usually you end up splitting up and then sort of divide and conquer for the most part. And then folks come together on the field and then every now and then in, in classroom scenarios. But for the Saints this week, 
they haven't had the ability to split up and go about their usual rhythm in terms of, you know, tight ends working with their tight end coach, offensive line working with the offensive line coach and Dan Rauscher and, uh, you know, CJ, Coach CJ working with the wide receivers. They've instead just been in a room together effectively working with Sean Payton. And you heard Jameis Winston talk about earlier this week that it's kind of a dream come true for him to be working directly with the head coach. Just goes to show you how rare that opportunity actually is for the entire offense. So it's going to be really interesting. Does that create blocks or barriers in terms of communication amongst or, or across all of those different position groups, or does it create greater cohesion going into Sunday's game? And, you know, Ross, one of the things that I'm just absolutely flabbergasted about is, yeah, Marcus Davenport, who obviously heading into the season, it's a big year for him. You, you draft Peyton Turner to kind of give him a little bit of motivation, the carrot, if you will, to get him back into – like formed where he's absolutely competitive from start to finish, and he gets hurt like week one, a peck, and he's out for the next several weeks, and you don't know what the status is on Peyton Turner because he's been a guy that's been largely MIA, didn't play at all week one. It just makes you wonder, like, what's going to happen with a defensive end situation whenever you're not talking about Cam Jordan? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know the the selection of Peyton Turner had just as much to do with where Cam Jordan is in his career as it had to do with trying to motivate Marcus Davenport. You look on the the roster, the depth chart and everything, you have Peyton Turner kind of in line behind Carl Granderson behind Cam Jordan. So I, I wonder how much of Peyton Turner's trajectory depends upon how long Marcus Davenport is around up against how long how much longer Cam Jordan continues to contribute to this team and and, and beyond the team. And so I think that for me you know, I, you look at the Marcus Davenport situation, which is clearly a frustrating situation, clearly frustrating for Marcus Davenport, who came out and immediately made two big plays uh, to open up the game against Green Bay. He had the sack early. He also had a, a tackle on the backfield early. And then to unfortunately have this happen, now he's on injured reserve and will miss at least three weeks at this point. We're assuming that it's going that it's going to be more. Um, Javon Hargrave, the defensive tackle last year for the Philadelphia Eagles, had an injury that was similar, a pec strain, that kept him out about five weeks. He heard it August, 19, uh, August 17th during the offseason and then didn't make it back to the field until week two. So it was about five weeks there. So Peyton Turner, you know, he got injured in the middle of August, missed the entire preseason, didn't really have much time working in, in training camp. He was healthy for all the practice, all the practice, the two weeks going into um, going into the first game of the season, but was a healthy scratch the first game of the season. And I think that has to do with the fact that he simply probably wasn't up to speed, and also just the numbers situation around it. The Saints, you know, you have to make players inactive. You can't carry your full roster in, and the Saints already had five, or, or rather four, edge rushers that they were bringing into that game with Cam Jordan, Marcus Davenport, Tono Passanio, as well as. Carl Granderson. So just the numbers game of it all kept him as a healthy scratch. So I expect that you'll see him this weekend. Um, and a lot of it has to do with not only how, you know, the, this, the situation with Marcus Davenport, but how healthy is Tano Passanio coming into this game, who's questionable for this game, but didn't practice at all this week. Exactly. And, you know, that's amongst a lot of other guys as well. Marshawn Lattimore was limited in practice. P.J. Williams limited. A lot of guys are questionable. I mean, C.J. Gardner-Johnson didn't practice at all. Actually, he practiced on Wednesday, then he was didn't practice the next mm-hmm. two days, but it's just sitting here. You wonder what's going on there, but also along the offensive line, you have Eric McCoy. He's out after his calf injury, and he'll be out for a little while. And you think about it, like how huge was it to see Cesar Ruiz be able to keep this offensive line afloat 
it's it was like, oh man, now you kind of start to realize why you drafted somebody like Ruiz who has that. And I hate to I hate to see these guys and say it just in the sense of cross training where you see guys mm-hmm. be used more as a duel where it's a guard slash center, a lot like maybe a will clap to a certain extent. But mm-hmm. McCoy and Ruiz, that was a seamless transition. You saw later on in the game, that offensive line held up nicely against the Green Bay pass rush. Yeah, they did a really, really good job, and that is exactly why you invest in your offensive line. I mean, you look at this New Orleans team's offensive line, and you know you can see top three picks, a lot of first round picks across that entire starting unit, and so I, top three as in top three rounds, excuse me. But you know this is a a bit always been a big focus for the New Orleans Saints is their offensive line, and this this situation here is exactly why Eric McCoy is probably going to miss about five or so weeks. Uh, this New Orleans Saints team is going to be very different after the bye week than it's going to be for the next couple of weeks because after the bye week we're talking about these two guys coming back and Eric McCoy and Marcus Davenport, but that's also the expected timeline for Michael Thomas. That is also when uh, uh, David Onyemata's suspension uh, comes to an end. So, I mean, this is going to be a very, very different team by then. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see Cesar Ruiz continue to play center this week. The Saints went out and signed Austin Ryder, who's a very good center. He only allowed 11 total pressures at all last season, 11 total pressures the year before as well, and hasn't allowed a sack since that Super Bowl 40, or excuse me, 54 win against the uh, San Francisco 49ers for Kansas City. He's a really, really good center, but you, know, you signed him in the middle of the week, <laughs> so I don't know that you can really get him up to speed on the game plan. And the, the thing that's different now about the center position for the Saints is that the center is calling – identifications, he's IDing, and he's also calling all of the protections for the offensive line. And so that used to be Drew Brees' responsibility since 2000, from 2007 to last season. That was Drew Brees who did all of that. Now all of a sudden the center has to come in with more and more responsibility. So it's another reason why it was so impressive to see Cesar Ruiz do what he did. But he basically just, you know, he sits there next to Eric McCoy every day hearing Eric McCoy make those protections, those IDs. He knows what they all mean. And so it was no chore for him to transition to telling other people those IDs and protections. It's a little bit different when you sign somebody off the street who you know hasn't been with the team at all this offseason and then say, okay, go out there and, and call all these IDs and protections. So I wouldn't be surprised if Cesar Ruiz there again this week. All right, I got two more questions for you. One about the Carolina Panthers and obviously Sam Darnold in that number. And he looked good in his first start for the Carolina Panthers. After all, he was part of the Jets. I mean, nobody looks good in that green uniform. And, I mean, no <laughs> quarterback has, has been good since Joe Namath for that franchise. And I think at the end of the day, I think Darnold may have a better opportunity to improve in 2021 with this Panthers franchise. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he he is not someone that I have a lot of confidence in at all. He's not somebody that I look at and say, oh, this is the, the quarterback that the Carolina Panthers has been waiting for. It's more so for me that the Carolina Panthers are the team that he needed, if that makes sense. Um, he, much like Carson Wentz, is in the best possible scenario in terms of an offensive coordinator and a head coach that are going to lean in and create a system around a quarterback and that are, are going to develop something around their quarterback and put weapons around them. And that's exactly what they did. This New, this New Orleans Saints team over the past four years has been so good and have went 8-0, 8-1, no, excuse me, without Drew Brees because of how good the team was around them. That's what Carolina is trying to replicate in Carolina right now. You look at the tight ends with Ian Thomas and Dan Arnold. Those are good pass catchers for you, nice red zone threats. You've got these great wide receivers. When you go out and draft Terrace Marshall from LSU and add him to 
DJ Moore, who's extremely explosive, Robbie Anderson, who's a speedster, and of course you have Christian McCaffrey, and you're trying to build up this offensive line with the extensions of Taylor Moten and some of these other players that are along there. You want to get a little bit better than Elf Line, but you're waiting for Brady Christensen, who they just drafted this past year, to get into um, you know to get into the swing of things. You have a system now in Carolina and an offense now in Carolina that can support whoever that quarterback is. So it's the perfect situation for Sam Darnold. You just want to see Sam Darnold get good. That's the biggest thing about this. He has a lot of trouble beyond 10 yards. He was 0-6 in passes uh, last in that game against the New York Jets. It passes between 10 to 19 yards. He did complete three of them beyond 20 yards down the field, but a lot of those were busted coverage. He also had three of those passes. Um, he also had two of those passes, excuse me, batted at the line. So this is going to be something to continue to keep an eye out on is can he extend the field in the intermediate areas of the field? Because if you're only successful short and you're only successful deep, then that's going to give you give the New Orleans Saints a very good opportunity to take advantage of you because they have a very athletic second level, even without Quan Alexander, thanks to Zach Bond and Demario Davis, and they have very good deep coverage down there with Marcus Williams. And my last one is we talk about Sam Darnold. Is there a more cursed quarterback tight end combination than Sam Darnold and Dan Arnold? Oh man, I know. I <laughs> it just sound it sounded so weird when I saw Sam Darnold touchdown pass to Dan Arnold. It's like, wait, what? It was it was like a couple of, a few years ago. The the Saints had worked out um, Jordan Cameron, the tight end that used to play in Cleveland, and we all went nuts because you had. Cameron Jordan on one side of the ball, then you had Jordan Cameron on the other side of the ball, and it was just going to mess everybody up. It's kind of like last year where the Saints had CJ, GJ, they had DJ and PJ as well. Oh my God. And it's just, <laughs> it was just so much. It was just simply so much. Uh, so Sam Darnold to Dan Arnold, those two guys having to pass and catch from one another. Can't wait to see how much trouble that gives reporters and commentators throughout the season. <laughs> Darnold and Arnold sounds like a great um, podcast. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. It also sounds like somebody that just slapped a fake mustache on and then decided that they were the evil version of themselves. Like, you go from Arnold to Darnold, like, that is that, that in and of itself. <laughs> Ross, thank you so much for coming on, my man. We'll talk to you down the road. Take it easy. Absolutely, brother. Stay safe, man. See you soon. I will, man. I will see you later, probably in two weeks' time. But we're going to get out of here. One last segment, one last take right after this on 103.7 The Game. You're listening to Under the Dome with CD. Just before we close up shop here on 1037 The Game, the famous CD is looking to fire off one more take before dropping the mic. Is it going to be a hot one, or is it going to be one he'd like to take back six months down the road? Let's listen in and find out. My final take is a fantasy take. And I'll say this much. If you're wondering where to go on the waiver wire on a Sunday morning, if he's available, get him. Get him. And I'm talking about Elijah, or if you search for him Yahoo or whatever, it's Eli Mitchell. So make sure you are aware of that. Get Eli Mitchell in your lineup soon. But I appreciate everybody for listening in and calling in on the program, as always. And thanks so much to Scott Watkins and also Ross Jackson for coming on the program and talking football with me and letting you hear their takes on the world of sports. We'll be back in two weeks' time. We're out of time today. 
off next Saturday. Thanks a lot, LSU, Mississippi State. But trust me, when we come back to start off October, we'll be back in better than ever. So until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you down the road. Show it over. Oh, yeah. Kick it.